We are this morning in Acts chapter 10. Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? Lord, help us as we, again, open your scriptures and look into what you have to communicate to us in the book of Acts, that we will be reminded, again, of the power of your Spirit's work in people's lives. That when you call people, you transform them. And when you transform them, that transformation is evident. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us as we observe that in this, in this morning's text with Peter and Cornelius, that we will be challenged and encouraged and find our confidence in the God who is at work, who has been at work and is at work and has promised to be at work, glorifying himself through the means of humans. So, Lord, I pray you will help us to rejoice at the same time hear the the challenge of the text. In your name I pray. Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 10 this morning. We're going to actually be looking at chapter 10 verses 1 through chapter 10 verse 33. So that's what we're going to cover today. Just so you're aware, uh, this text probably is somewhat familiar to many, if not all of you. Uh, There is, I would argue, a main theme or main point of the text that we are going to recognize and talk about. There are also some subplots, as it were, sub-meanings that have their understanding in light of the new and important central teaching of the text. And then there's some color of the story that we're going to recognize as well, because the color is, is there for a purpose, and so we want to recognize the color as well. The color we're just going to touch upon as we work our way through the text, but we will touch upon it. It's a story of of Peter's vision of the clean and unclean animals and the ramifications of that. Uh, It's also an interesting text in that we are introduced uh, powerfully and dramatically to a Gentile who becomes a believer. And so it's important we see that as well because that is really kind of central and somewhat central into the text. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 10 and read through verse 33. The story actually continues beyond 33, but I just felt like that was just too much to cover this morning. So we'll save next week's for the, the, the remainder of the story. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 10, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel had spoke to him and departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while he, they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision um, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken by all the whole uh, by by well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by an angel, by a holy angel, to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as they talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection, and I, or I'm sorry, I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the, um, I was praying at my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging at the house in the house of, si of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and now you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. It's an interesting story, actually. It's an intriguing story. Uh, relatively simple to understand on its face. But there's some pretty significant depth of, uh, of communication and truth going on in the text at the same time. So starting in verse 1 and working our way through briefly for the first eight verses, we have this guy Cornelius introduced. He will show up later on in chapter 11 as well as other places, uh, one or two other places in the book of Acts. We know several things about Cornelius. He's obviously a Gentile. Uh, we'll find out that in just a second, but before we see that he's a Gentile, we know firstly that he's what? A centurion. You see that. Um, and as a centurion, he's in charge of a hundred people in a, uh, of a group that is a larger group of soldiers called the Italian cohort, which means he's what? He's Roman. He's a Roman citizen. He's Italian, and he is in the Roman soldiers with the Roman soldiers. 
Now, verse 2, we discover a few more things about him. I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 2, we discover a few more things about Cornelius. You'll notice it says, He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continuously to God. So we are introduced to some other perspectives on Cornelius. As an Italian, as a non-Jew, a Gentile, a Roman, we discover pretty quickly that he's heard something about God. And in hearing something about God, there's a couple things that pop off the page. The very first statement after his Roman credentials is that he is a devout man. That is, he is committed to worshiping God. That's what it says. He's devout in his worship. And then what Luke does is skin that out a bit, doesn't he? He's a devout man. That is, he's very committed to worshiping God. And then he adds to it, he fears God which carries all the weight of all the various meanings of fear. It's not just fear as in he's afraid of, but it's also in, it's a reference to great worship and respect and awe. I would argue that included in the statement of fear is a perspective of he obeyed, he was regularly and, and faithfully obeying what he knew God had declared. At least what he knew, how much we, he knew, we don't know. But he was obeying what he knew. He was following God. And notice it says also in verse 2, with all his household, which means he'd been doing what? He'd been proclaiming about God and what he knew about God to his whole household. And when he says his whole household, please make sure you understand, this is not just including his wife and children. It's not even just including perhaps his wife, children, and other relatives. His whole household would include his servants, as well as those who attended him. We find an, an attendant mentioned, which would have been a soldier who attended him. As a centurion, he'd have some soldiers that would take care of him, provide for him. And so, what we, we get a sense of right away, what he knew about God, he was really serious about. He was worshiping God fearing God, and he was proclaiming what he knew about God to everyone of his household. And evidently, the people of his household were also, therefore, what? Devout and worshipful. Do you get the sense there that's the case? We also find out in verse 2 that he gave alms generously to the people. That is, he cared for the poor. He recognized that what he received was from God and he used it to glorify God by caring for the poor. And then lastly in verse 2, there's a striking statement made. Isn't there? We can't just fly by this. Here's a guy that probably does not know much about God. He certainly doesn't know much about Jesus, if anything about Jesus at this point. We find out later on he's, he's not a Jew. He's not a proselyte Jew, by the way, because later on it talks about him being uncircumcised. I think it's chapter 11 talks about him being uncircumcised. So therefore he's not, he's not a Jew, but what he knows about God, wherever he picked it up, was most likely from the temple, but from the Gentile part of the temple, but he's not circumcised, and, and um, yet what he did know about God he was a worshiper and a follower. But what's striking, I find, is the way 
Luke wraps up this discussion of, of, of Cornelius. Even, I want you to think about this. This is part of the color of the story, but it's important color. I want you to think about this. Even without knowing about Jesus, even without having that salvation relationship yet, he's described as what? At the end of verse 2. Praying continually. Right? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Cornelius, a man who isn't even yet saved, doesn't even know about Jesus. But he's what? He's praying continually. He's living a life of prayer, isn't he? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a actually a really stunning statement. If I may pause on it for a second, because... This is one of those statements that really catch my attention because one of the things I do know about Christianity in general is what? Are we a prayerful group of people? I didn't, I didn't say where we're supposed to be. I know. I, know. I didn't say how we're supposed to be. But it's interesting to see here's this guy who isn't even a believer at this point. Yeah, he believes in God, but he doesn't know about Jesus. He doesn't know about Jesus' sacrificial atonement. He doesn't know any of that. He seemingly knows very little. But what he knows, he's absolutely what? Enthralled with, isn't he? What he knows, he's absolutely enthralled with. He's proselytizing. He's proclaiming, isn't he? He's ministering. He's giving. He's caring. And he's praying. Now we know that all this is happening. Why? I think you were hinting at it, Jim. Because the Holy Spirit's obviously at work in his heart, right? The Spirit's obviously working in his heart. And the evidence of that is this, isn't it? What I find striking is this is pre-salvation Spirit working. Or let me put it differently. Pre-Holy Spirit with power. Or put it differently. Pre-Acts 1.8, isn't it? At work in this guy. And he is absolutely caught up with it. He's absolutely caught up with the truth that he understands even though he has not yet come to faith in Christ. He will, but he has not yet. He's devout. He's giving. He's fearing God. And he's leading his household in this. And he's praying continually. I mean, the, the, the challenge of, the, of verse 2 jumps off the page, doesn't it? I mean, I feel like I don't even have to say anything. But it just kind of jumps off the page. I don't know about you. When I read verse 2, I, I, I just start, in my heart, I start recognizing the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's painful to read that to me. It really is. 
I hope it is. Because I read verse 2, and then I find when I dialogue with, with Christians so often, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I think people fear more their team loses too often or their quarterback is hurt than they fear God. And I think too often Christians, if I use the metaphor, pray to the football God. It is football, it is football Sunday, right? Super Bowl Sunday. This is, I'm not saying that football is evil and sinful or that Super Bowls are evil and sinful. I'm just saying, I think too often, I'm using it as an example, as an illustration, too often Christians will, metaphorically speaking, pray to the football God more than they'll pray to the God of the universe. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying that's literal. You get my point. I think too often the evidence is not this, is what I'm trying to say. I think that's what Luke's trying to say. The challenge is that too often for people who claim to be Christians, an unsaved guy looks more like a Christian than a saved guy does. Do you get that? I think that, that, that that's what verse 2 is saying. And if what I see in the book of Acts 1.8 is true, then that must not be true. It can't be true. It cannot be. If the Spirit's moving in this guy Cornelius who isn't even saved yet, he's like this. And then we look at all the other examples of those who are saved in the Scriptures, and you say, wait a second. Have we done something unjust to God's teaching about Christianity? Just off of verse 2. Have we done an injustice to the biblical teaching about the Spirit? Have we done an injustice about the biblical teaching of the ramifications of salvation? Have we misunderstood? And many other things. But with that, I'm going to move on. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he has his vision. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He has a vision. And you, you can read there about what happens. It is interesting that Cornelius is in terror, which, by the way, any time in the scriptures that somebody has an interaction with a, a divine being, whether it's an angel or, or, or otherwise, uh, a, uh, a, a pre-incarnate appearance, appearance of Jesus, whatever, you find it always to be the case of fear. And certainly you see it here. Terror. And he says, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So go to Joppa and get Simon. <clears throat> uh, or send men, I'm sorry, to Joppa and, and bring Simon back. He gives him instructions. And um, then the angel leaves and he sends his servants and one devout soldier who is among the, men's, many, uh, among the soldiers who were attending him and uh, sends them to get him in Joppa. That's your story. So they're on their journey. That's the first part of the story. They're on their journey to Joppa. It's about a two-day journey. The next day, 
they are, as they're on their journey and getting close to the city, as you see in verse 9, Peter, it's interesting, we're introduced now to Peter. Cornelius fades off the scene temporarily as Peter becomes front and center. And then later on, it'll be focused on Peter and Cornelius together. But Peter becomes front and center in the story temporarily. Peter, it says, goes up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. The sixth hour, if the ninth hour is three o'clock, then the sixth hour is what? Noon. Absolutely, it's noon. Now, it's interesting that Jesus, that, I'm sorry, that Luke records that Peter goes up to the rooftop to pray on the on the sixth hour. That's actually kind of intriguing in light of the storyline. For a very important reason. Because in Jewish practices, the prayer times were in the morning and evening. Those are the two prayer times. And they were significant. Morning and evening were the prayer times. But it's interesting because for Peter... We can presume, and I would presume, I think we, we would be right in presuming, it would only make sense, that he'd been up on the rooftop in the morning doing what? Praying, and he would go up in the evening and pray, but praying to God was so important to him that he also did what? He went up at noontime as well. Now, it's equally interesting, if I may throw this out there, it is equally interesting, I think. He goes up to the housetop on the sixth, at the sixth hour, about the sixth hour, to pray. And while he's up there, he what? Verse 10. He got hungry. And so what do you do when you get hungry? No! Peter prays! Right? What we do when we get hungry, we eat. But not Peter. He's hungry. What does he do? He prays. He takes a brief pause and says to somebody who's probably an attendant of his, hey, could you get me some food? I, I really want to pray. There's somebody in the house that says, could you, I mean, you can hear it out of the text, can't you? Verse 9 and 10. I'm hungry. And I suspect for Peter, this isn't just like, I'm a little snacky. I think he's really hungry. But for Peter, what's important? Prayer. Prayer is what's really important. So Peter doesn't go down and forage in the kitchen. Peter doesn't go down to make himself something to eat and stop praying. What does Peter do? Peter keeps praying. He just stops for a moment and says to an attendant, could you get me some food? I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to continue to pray because that's what's really important. It's pretty impressive. Not for Peter, but it's impressive in that what we get this glimpse of in this short little text of verse 9 and 10, color of the story. We get a guy just like Cornelius, don't we? What's important to Paul, or Peter, I mean, what's important? Praying is. Praying is front and center for, for Peter. So verse 10, he, become, he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, what happened? Well, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, 
being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. I want to stop on, on verse 12 just a second. He's having this vision that while he's in a trance, it's of a sheet probably being lowered down, massive sheet, being lowered down, and on that sheet is a bunch of animals. Now, people have argued back and forth whether it was when it says in verse 12, um, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the, of the air. Some people have argued that it's every single animal created. There's, there's an example of it there. I don't think that was the case. When it says all sorts of or all kinds of animals, it's not saying every last animal is representative. It's just there's a lot of different types. They're all different kinds. But I would argue that most likely in light of Peter's response, the sheet was full of what kind of animals? All kinds of unclean animals. That is, animals that in the Old Testament law, Jews were prohibited from eating them. Or absolutely prohibited. Now, just as an aside, if I may throw this out here, just as an aside, I don't believe for a second that the reason why those animals were called unclean by God is because they were unhealthy. I don't buy that for a second. It's not like in the Old Testament God cared about their health, in the New Testament that they, he doesn't care about their health anymore. That doesn't make any sense at all. I don't want to get into all the specifics about why they were called unclean. Uh, so we'll leave it aside. I just want to throw that out there because I hear that very, very, very commonly. That though, you know, if you want to eat healthy, don't eat the, the animals that, that were said as unclean. That's not the point of the text in the Old Testament. In any case, Peter looks at all these animals and he sees a bunch of animals that are classified as unclean in the Old Testament law. As he recognizes that, verse 13, there comes a voice to him from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I would argue that's the voice of God speaking to him. Rise, Peter, kill from these animals and eat. Now he's hungry, remember? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter responds. And he says what? By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So Peter rejects God's command, does he not? He rejects it. I think it's important that we see that. He rejects it. There's two other places in the Scriptures where he rejects it. We'll leave it at that at this point. It is just a temporary rejection, by the way. <clears throat> Verse 15, And the voice came to him a second time, again a second time, saying, What God has made clean, do not call common. This is the second command. What God has called clean, do not call uncommon. We're going to go back to that in just a second. This happened, verse 16, three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So the vision ended, trance ended. So we're, there's a couple of things we need, to, we need to recognize here in this text. Verse 15 and 16, especially. First of all, we can wrap it further. So we get the sheet come down. We've got all these animals on there. Peter, or God, Peter's told, rise, kill, and eat. He responds, uh-uh, not doing that in a very emphatic way. I've never done that. I'm not going to do it now. God responds and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. It is interesting. We'll jump to verse 16 before we jump to verse 15. 
In verse 16, it records this happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Do you think it's just by happenstance that it happens three times? I don't think so. What other three-time things happen in Peter's life? He denies Christ three times. And three times at the sea. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And now for the third time, we have this three-sequence take place. I think it's important that we see it. The first sequence, deny me three times. And he does. He denies him three times. It is interesting that next it's three times, do you love me, feed my sheep? And then in this case, a three-time denial again. Isn't it? We have a three-time denial again. By no means. Don't you call unclean what I call clean. But that brings us to an understanding of verse 15 that's really, really important. In verse 15 it says, And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, the people have taken a variety of tacts on this verse, verse 15, to try to understand what, the, what verse 15 is talking about. Obviously, literally, he's talking about what? The clean and clean, unclean animals, right? I mean, literally, he's talking about the clean and unclean animals that are on the sheet and, and displayed in his trance. He's saying, those are unclean, I will not eat them because of the law. Right? Because of the law, I will not eat them. God simply says, do not call those animals unclean if I've called them clean. Well, where do you call them clean? Where do you call them clean? Yes, but it's after Genesis that the animals are called unclean. So where do, you call him un where do you call him clean? The answer is that he did from Jesus' prophetic teaching numerous times and then in Acts 1 when he said, you shall be my witnesses to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. See, that gives a little hint about the thing I said I wasn't going to talk about, the clean and unclean animals serve some really important purposes. It established a connection, unclean, unclean. It showed a connection. I'm not going to get into all the different things, but it certainly showed a connection. Unclean animals, unclean as in uncircumcised people. Correct? Unclean. And certainly when you read the law, you will see repeatedly in the law this unclean perspective with regard to Gentiles. And how if you, if you interact with Gentiles in some ways, you're okay, but if you interact in different ways, you are yourself unclean. And so you need to go through ceremonial cleansing in order to be clean once again. Okay? So in reality, out of several realities with regard to the animals... You have, by illustration, the idea that God has declared them clean because they represent something greater, which 
Christ is declared clean. You should be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most part of the earth. Does that sound like just Jews to you? No. So what do you do? He's declared they're, uncle- they're not unclean anymore. Right? But even the Old Testament, the Old Testament Jews were called to evangelize the world, weren't they? They were called to tell, the, tell Gentiles about, about, about God. Certainly that is the case. But now everything has changed. But more importantly, well, before we get to the more importantly, we also have him by inference here in the text itself declaring them clean. Right? By inference, that's what he said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. He's rebuking him. He said, I, I, I will not, I never have, I will not eat unclean animals. He, whoa, God says, don't call unclean what I have called clean. By definition, if he's telling him not to call him unclean, he's by definition saying they are clean. So in the near context, he's declaring them clean. But he's just declaring what he's been saying all along in the New Testament. Which I would argue, by the way, is hinted at even as early as John 1. When he says, as many as come unto me, but he said he came unto his own and his own what? Rejected him. Right? Received him not. But as to many as receive me is even in there an inference toward the Gentiles, isn't it? But most importantly, when he said, Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean, when, Jesus, when God responds back and says, the voice said to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean, <clears throat> is a really important statement. Because a lot of people have argued, and I've heard this repeatedly, that this don't call don't call clean or unclean, what I call clean, is re- referencing people, and that's right, it is. It's not referencing the animals, that's just a metaphor, that's just a picture. But but a lot of people have said, well, it's it's referring to um, uh, people, Gentiles, and more importantly, many people have said, well, this is a, a call by Jesus to reject racism. Okay. I don't have a problem with that as a step of understanding. But it certainly is not the conclusion of the storyline. In fact, it's not even it's just barely a, a micro step into what, what Jesus what God is really communicating to Peter. All Peter has known is the Old Testament, right? We don't have the New Testament written yet, but we do know a couple things about Peter. Before he lived in fear, right? And the Holy Spirit came upon him with power, and he has been changed. Correct? Uh, But at the same time, he's still changing. Because we're going to find out in another chapter or so that he's going to crash and burn on the whole Gentile thing again. He will. That being said, what is God really drilling into here when he says, don't call unclean what I have called clean? What he's really drilling into, it, what God is really drilling into is this. What he is saying to Peter in these three interactions is so important. He is saying this. When Christ died on the cross and when he went to the grave, 
And then when he rose from the dead, literally everything changed. It is crucial that Peter gets this. It is crucial that Christians get this. When Christ died and was buried and rose again, everything changed. It's not that a few things changed. Everything changed. Jesus talked about it, didn't he? He came to what? Fulfill the law. He was the fulfiller of the law. Or to put it differently, he was the actual fulfillment of the law, is probably the best way to put it. In other words, the entire law focused completely upon him. And it was brought to its grand conclusion in him. And it remains in him. And so when what what God is saying to Peter is this, Peter, you need to understand something dramatic. The dramatic thing that you need to understand is that when Christ came was killed, buried and resurrected from the dead, every last thing about your reality changed. Before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, everything in the Old Testament looked forward to. Correct? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Once that happened, everything changed. And what God is saying to Peter, it's not just micro-changes. It's not stutter step changes. It's not a little piecemeal changes. It's not, you know, a little bit of your life. Your life let's say your life contains 150 different things, and four of them will be changed by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. No. What we have here, if you understand the Old Testament law correctly, which I would argue is correct, especially with all the, all the food laws, but a lot of it is this way, what God was trying to communicate to the people, overall, overarching in the law, is that he must be considered in every aspect of life. That's the idea of the law. He must be. Now, that was the reality. But Christ came and fulfilled the law. And all focus is now on Him. It's no longer on the law. And so everything now becomes interpreted not by the law. Everything now become, begins to become interpreted by Christ. What was the operative phrase or word that I used there? Remember in Old Testament, everything was interpreted by the law? The key word was everything. Everything. And what God is communicating to Peter in this text is not merely about animals, and it's not merely about racism. It is about what? 
everything. Every nook and cranny of Peter's life is inexorably altered. Every perspective, every activity, every word, every thought, every deed, every everything now finds its meaning and purpose and goal and everything. Where? In Christ. You see, this is nothing more than what was summed up so perfectly by Paul in Romans 11.36. I know we go there a lot. But all things are from Him, through Him, to Him, to Him be glory forever. Amen. That's what God's telling Peter. Listen, I don't care what you believe to be true. I don't care what you've held to. I don't, I don't really care what you have considered to be important. I don't care about anything. Here's the deal. This is what God's telling to Peter. Here's the deal. Jesus is the new interpreter. Jesus is the new standard. Jesus is the new everything. And if Jesus fulfilled the law, don't you dare call common what is or uncommon or clean what is unclean. Don't do that. And it doesn't have to be about animals. It's also about people. But it doesn't have to be about racism only. It can be about anything. The idea is Christ came to fulfill the law and the law ruled or was supposed to rule the people's lives and show them how much they needed a Redeemer, right? Because they couldn't fulfill it. But it was to be it was to be inundating the entire life of the person. I mean, that's why they have God put laws such as, like, don't mix materials for your clothing. Well, that's kind of... Who cares? Right? Well, you know why God did that? So that when you get dressed in the morning, you're doing what? You're thinking about what pleases God. What glorifies Him. Well, uh, I can't wear wool and cotton together. Ugh. But I really like these two articles of clothing, but I love God more. And that was the idea. Don't plant two different crops in the same field. Why not? Actually, in some cases, that's actually really good to do for the field. Why not? Well, there's a good reason why not. It has nothing to do with the crops. It has nothing to do with the field. It has to do with your mind. That's what it has to do with, your mind. And what he says in the text effectively to Peter is, everything's changed. That's all put away. That's all fulfilled in Jesus. And now, Jesus is the sole interpreter. Jesus is. It's a radical thought. So Peter's wrestling with this. 
Talk about departure. Everything he's ever known is this. And what's complicated for Peter probably is because, for the most part, what did Jesus do? He followed the law. Now, sometimes he didn't follow the law, right? But he always had a good reason why he didn't follow the law, right? Because he understood the law better. And he explained this is why. And he used illustrations. But he followed the law. So this is all new deal to him. This is like a, a connection, a connecting of the dots that never took place for him up to this point in time. So verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he, ha that he had seen might mean, what happens? There's a knock on the door, so to speak, isn't there? People standing at the gate, verse 18, and called out, to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, wrestling with it, trying to figure it out, the Spirit speaks to him and says, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise down, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Notice what's missing in the Spirit's statement to Peter. Ready? Here it is. They're Gentiles. And by the way, Rusty's rubbing his tummy. It doesn't sound like he ate, does it? I don't think he got any food in, did he? Not yet. He will, but he didn't at this point. But what's missing when the Spirit's statement is, they're Gentiles. It's interesting what the Spirit says. Behold, three men are looking for you. Arise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. That doesn't mean go with them right now. Without hesitation means the Spirit's saying, listen, when you open the door, don't hesitate to be with them. That's what it means. Why? Because you know what's going to happen? As soon as that door opens, what's Peter's natural Jewish tendency? To hesitate, right? Remember, he's wrestling with this vision. The Spirit just said, don't have any hesitation when you see him. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, and he, he knows they're, he knows they're, they're Gentiles. You, you'd know it right away. There's a variety of reasons why you'd know, but you'd know. Their clothing, for example, does not demonstrate that they're Jews. <laughs> Easy example. As, as Italians, they would have that Italian look to them. I looked over at the McClintocks because they know what I'm talking about. Right? They're probably talking like this. <laughs> that's not... That's <laughs> with both hands. <laughs> we come to meet with you. So he went away. These people were Italians, right? <clears throat> That's not too racist, is it? Okay, good. Just want to check. <laughs> so, verse twenty-one again. Peter went down. I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're coming? They said Cornelius, a centurion. They're declaring now what? A Gentile, right? They declared to him another Gentile, and and but then they add to it what? An upright and what? God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. You get the sense that they're almost apologetic for this, don't you? It's like they know that the Jews don't spend time with the Gentiles. So it's almost like they're saying, well, he's, he's God-fearing, well spoken of by the entire, by the whole Jewish nation, which, by the way, is extreme hyperbole, right? 
no no Roman soldier of a hundred people is going to be known throughout the whole Roman or whole Jewish nation. It's just not going to happen. <clears throat> but anyway, um, they, they say uh, Cornelius was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. Notice what Peter does next. Peter, verse 23, does what? Invites him into his house. That's something the Jews would not do. Our first glimpse that Peter's getting it. Peter, remember it said he was perplexed, right? But yet the Spirit told him, do it without hesitation. So he goes, he discovers there's Gentiles at the door asking him to come to their, their boss, another Gentile, a centurion, and he says, come on in. And the idea of come on in means two things. Number one, come in and let's eat. Which is absolutely not going to happen Jew to Gentile. And the implication also, because the next, next line, next sentence, the next day he rose and went away with them. Implying what? They stayed overnight with him. Peter's starting to get it, isn't he? Not how I treat, remember, don't miss it, not it's important how I treat Gentiles. He's starting to get what? That it's not really about the Gentiles, it's about, it's about Jesus. And what Jesus has actually accomplished on the cross. He's getting a bigger picture of what Christ actually accomplished in the on the cross via these Gentiles who have come to see him. Which brings us to the next day. He rises with them and goes away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa, Joppa accompany him. Now, we don't know why the brothers from Joppa accompany him. Could be they just came along to be witnesses and to aid Peter. Could be they came along like, what is going on? We don't know. <clears throat> Verse 24, and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. You get another glimpse of Cornelius, don't you? An important picture. Here again is Cornelius, a guy who is, we already saw, a devout, a prayer, a giver of alms, caring for the poor, and someone who is all about proclaiming God, right? And what do we find? Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. Two things you see, right? Number one, do you see a faith in God there? A full expectation? Peter's going to come. And the implication of the text is he didn't wait for Peter to get there before he started calling everybody together. The, the statement of the text is he expected it. He calculated it out. He ran his Google Maps. He knew it was two days each way. So he calculated it out. He'll be here in four days. And so he started telling all his friends and relatives, Peter, a Jew, is coming to tell us about God. In four days. In three days. In two days. In one day. And in that morning, today, Peter will be here. Can you hear it? Come to my house and hear about God. We don't have a clue what he's going to say. But come to my house. So you see this picture. He is so enthralled with God. He's doing what? 
He's telling others, as an unsaved guy, he's telling others, spirits at work, no question. And he has full expectation of what God said was going to happen. It's going to happen. So Peter gets there. In verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, and the evidence is clear he's not a believer. Isn't it? Because what happens? He falls at Peter's feet and worships him. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. You get the clear evidence. He doesn't even understand that much of the, Holy, of the Old Testament, right? If he understood the Old Testament, he would not have bowed and worshipped to Peter. He didn't get even the basics of the Old Testament. But he just understood some things about God. And he was caught up with what he understood. He falls down at his feet and worships him. But Peter, the implications, immediately lifted him up. You, you get the sense Peter's not being really gentle with him. He lifts him up. It sounds pretty aggressive to me. He lifts him up and says, Stand up! I too am a man. You can almost, I know I'm adding to it, but you can almost hear a gruffness to Peter. If you know Peter's lifestyle, you kind of expect that, don't you? <clears throat> I too am a man. Verse 27. And as he talked to him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. And then what does he say next? But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The implication of his statement, again, is not just racism here, friends. <laughs> Institutional or otherwise. What he's really saying is, God has shown me the power of the cross work of Christ. God has shown me in a greater way than he's ever shown me before the power of what Christ did on the cross was and still is. The thing that I held to as being unclean is over. Christ conquers all. Christ supersedes all. Christ fulfills all. <clears throat> so, when I was sent for, I came without objection. Interesting. He objected at first, didn't he? He objected when the vision was going on. Did he object when the Spirit told him what to do? No. Because already he was starting to get it. So I came when I was sent for, without objection. I ask you then why you sent for me. Verse 30. <clears throat> and Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, which is three o'clock. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. To what? To hear all you've been commanded by the Lord. What an amazing statement by Cornelius, isn't it? He said, Peter, God told me. Although I'm not even sure he realized it was God. <laughs> uh, he seems like he may, but it's a little, eh. 
But he knew it was a, a heavenly experience, right? <clears throat> and his response as a, as a God-fearer is what? Peter, God told us, you're here. God sent you to us. You're kind enough to obey. And you came. I want you to know we are all here. And he says, many. So his house is packed. And a centurion, he would have had a big house. It's packed. We are all here for what purpose? To hear all that you commanded, been commanded to say. Hear what? What's the operative word there? All. All. We are now going to be quiet and you are going to tell us everything. And the implication is what? We will receive everything. The Spirit's at work, right? Isn't it? Isn't, isn't the Spirit working in them? He's clearly at work in them. Main point of the text. We've gotten to the end of the text. The main point of the text is when Christ came, was buried, and rose again, when He died, buried, and rose again, He changed everything. You know, we, we sing that song, and I've mentioned that many times, and the things of this earth will what? Go strangely dim, what? In the light of His glory and grace. It's all to Him in the faith, right? you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? The evidence through the Scriptures is pretty clear that song is right. I'm not saying the song is inspired. I'm just saying... The, the, the point of the song is really clear, isn't it? In the scriptures? And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, let me choose this as an example, if I may. Several examples. <clears throat> One of the most valuable things to a human is what? To every human. The most valuable thing to a human is what? More general. Life. Isn't it? most valuable thing to humans are is life. And food and water come into play immediately, right? Absolutely. Food and water clearly come into play. Oxygen too, right? You don't believe that? Hold your breath and go into water for four minutes and see how much air is important to you. Right? Well, know it. Food, water, air. Life. Very important to us. Yet, what do we see in the New Testament? Oh, and by the way, in the Old Testament as well. New Testament, though. What do we see? Is life most important to these people? The ones who love Jesus? Is life most important? No. As a matter of fact, quite to the contrary, don't you recognize in the New Testament that the New Testament lovers of God are more than willing to die? Don't you see that? And to suffer? And to be rejected? Why? Wait a second, I thought we all agreed that the most important thing is life. Why would they do that? I mean, Paul sums up so well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where he says, we don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are 
unseen are eternal. You know what he says? You know what he's really saying? He's saying it in two different ways, but here's what he's really saying. Physical life is something I see or is unseen? See. Eternal life is something I see or is unseen? Unseen. He's saying physical life, eternal life, seen, unseen. What's greater for Paul? Unseen. Is it even close? Is it a horse race? I mean, it's a blowout. It's not even a race at all for Paul, isn't it? He's like, I consider suffering for Jesus an amazing thing. Doesn't he say that over and over again? So he says, imprisoned? That's okay. Sing songs of praise. Doesn't he? Rejected, hated, stoned, beaten with rods? Meh, meh. Shipwrecked, bitten by a snake? Meh. I know that that's not in the, in, in the New Testament. It's not even the Greek. Meh. It's in the variant readings in the Greek. Meh. For Paul, it was all about eternal life. Why? So you can't leave it there because it's not about eternal life, is it? For Paul, it's not about eternal life. It's about Christ. See, for Paul, everything changed, didn't it? He hated Christ. He then loved Christ. Destruction of Christianity for Saul was all in all, wasn't it? And then once he was saved, Christ was all in all. Wasn't it? Isn't that what you see? Don't you see that everywhere in the New Testament? Except for those who dramatically fall away like Demas and the Asian church. And most of the churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3. And Galatia. <laughs> Corinthian church is going crazy too, right? They're all going crazy, right? But at the same time, there are some, isn't there? Right? Who are captivated by the one who fulfilled it all. They're captivated by the one who is now the interpreter. My sheep, what? Hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They what? No, they, they follow me. Is that what it says? Now, too many Christians have corrupted the idea to make it just new law. They follow me, so you better obey the law. You better do what God says. No, that's not what he says there. The following is the result of something, isn't it? It's the result of being known by God and therefore knowing God. The result is you what? Follow. It doesn't say, and so therefore I command you to obey me. It says, no, they follow me. <laughs> it's the way of things. When the Spirit comes with power, it's the way of things. And then when we as, as John says in, in 1 John, we walk in the light, right? As he is in the light. Then we fellowship, right? Why would we be in the light? 
Because he's shown his light in us, right? And then you know what happens sometimes? We sin, don't we? But those who are in the light do what when they sin? They confess their sins. And, and, it, and as John says in 1 John, what? God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? I mean, it's stunning. But for those who aren't in the light, on the other hand, that is, Christ is not the fulfillment. Christ is not the all in all. Christ is not the one to be enthralled with. He just gets a partition. They're in the light. They're in the, they're in the light. They're in the what? They're in the darkness. They're in the darkness. Which is why there's going to be people, many people, who will say, who will hear it said of them in that day, depart from me, I what? I never knew you. See, Christ is either the fulfiller or he isn't. He's either, he's either the all in all or he isn't. He's either the, the um, interpreter or he isn't. Right? And when we, when we don't turn to him as the interpreter or the fulfiller, the Spirit does what in our lives? He convicts us and drags us to repent. And interestingly enough, I use the word drags, but he drags us willingly. Because if we are in the light, we love the light. And we hate the darkness. Isn't that the teaching of the scriptures? Which is why you see Peter, what happens? He gets this, he's, he gets this vision, he's perplexed. That's an extreme confusion. But the Spirit helps him, and what happens? By the time he gets to the door, he starts getting it. Now, again, he crashes and burns in a little bit. And Paul has to call him to repentance. And he repents. Doesn't he? Yeah, because we're still sinners. But Peter's swift to repent. Why? Because he loves the light. And Christ is his interpreter. Here's what I want to say. Too often, I think, in Christianity today, this that we're talking about today is absolutely foreign. It's absolutely foreign. Because you get the sense that what, what Luke is recording is something that is transformative, isn't it? I mean, it is. Now, we'll always be transforming throughout our lives, right? No question, because, because he's infinite and we're finite. And we will always be discovering those places in our lives where we failed and he's not been the interpreter. But what's troubling, I think, in a lot of Christianity is that we, we partition our lives. And so this little part is God's. And then we got all the rest is that he's not the interpreter of And I'm okay with him not being the interpreter of that. That's how the vast swath of Christianity works. I'm okay with him not be the interpreter of all of this, but he's the interpreter of this. And I find that sometimes it's so small, this part is so small, it's just like Sunday morning. What's that? Well, the argument is, no, no, no. It's all. And we see that even in Cornelius. And that's even pre-salvation. And we see it in the examples throughout the scriptures. Don't we? 
every step of the way. So the, the, the encouragement is that, if I may quote Hebrews chapter 12, <coughs> friends, we have a great cloud of witnesses, don't we? We have a great cloud of witnesses. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He's referencing the Old Testament witnesses as examples we find in, in Hebrews chapter 11. But we have examples of what? What, are these great, what is this great cloud of witnesses all about? Well, chapter 12 tells us. Doesn't it? Yeah, and what does it say about them? Who for the joy, their focus is where? On the one who for the joy set before them, he endured the cross, before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated where? At the right hand of God. What does he say? So that we don't what? Lose heart. He says, all the, the, this cloud of witnesses are people who have their eyes fixed on Jesus. And this is Old Testament saints, friends, have their eyes fixed on Jesus based only and simply upon the prophecies. And he's telling us, here's our cloud of witnesses. Now, the call is for true believers to what? Fix our eyes on doing the law, obeying the law. Is that what he says in chapter 12? And he says, fix your eyes on Jesus because he fulfilled the law. Fix your eye on Jesus. Lock on. No partitions. None. Fix your eyes and remain fixed on Jesus. And I love what he says next because he is the author and perfecter. Isn't he? The author and perfecter of faith. He's just not an addition. He's the author and perfecter. And that's what Peter's getting a bigger picture of here in Acts chapter 10. Let us pray that we have this perspective on our lives by the Spirit and be changed and discover Christ in new and greater and greater ways. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we are people... Too often, our Christian culture has informed us, not your word. Our Christian culture has informed us, not your spirit. Our expectations, our ideas, have informed us. And we've latched onto those things. I pray that we will be like Cornelius. And we will find ourselves saying, now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. Lord, help us to learn of you <clears throat> and to be transformed. Draw us close. You've promised to do so. Open our eyes and help us to see so that you are lifted up high, are magnified, in our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.